Well, good morning, everyone, and Happy New Year. I'm glad you are uh, joined us this morning. Looks like we're picking up a little bit more traction from all the holidays and people either being away or being sick. Uh, I know Grant texted me this morning. He's been fighting a really bad head cold this weekend, and so he said he was staying home. He didn't say he was going to watch online, so I don't know quite what he's doing, but anyway, we'll... Uh, <laughs> We'll figure that one out this week, I guess, and see what's happening. But we're glad that you're here, and I'm going to invite you to bow with me for prayer before we step into the scriptures. Gracious Heavenly Father, we want to acknowledge that you are the great ancient of days who dwells transcendent above everything that you've created. The picture of Daniel 7 is magnificent, that you are surrounded by myriads of people and angels who worship and bow down to acknowledge your greatness and your glory. That they are, have the greatest privilege in all of the universe is to serve you. And your son is that heavenly son of man who took to himself flesh and blood and dwelt among us and revealed to us the invisible God in tangible form. Who lived on this earth and lived a perfect and sinless life and then offered himself as a sacrifice the only sufficient sacrifice to satisfy your wrath upon a sinful and broken humanity. And he is now the one who has been raised from the dead and transcended above all things. He is uh, filled with glory and a perfect reflection of your presence. He is our great high priest and the one whom intercedes for us before your presence. And so we bow with reverence and we bow with humility before your awesome presence with your son at our side who gives us the right and the privilege to be called sons of God. And Father, those who are true believers will have this unthinkable resource of the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit that dwells in their heart and mind, who interacts and, and coaches us and mentors us and teaches us, not just the information of your word, but the relevance that it has in terms of life and relationship and responsibility. And so Father, in all of the clutter and the noise of this world, we pray that your voice be the, be the one that we would listen to. And yet, even that takes tremendous spiritual focus because there's so much noise and so many people speaking into our life and so much clutter that sometimes it's so difficult to hear the whispers of your spirit in the prodding of your son. And we pray that as we gather here, this is, this is not the victory, this is the catalyst by which we go out and live a life that reflects not only your will, but to do it in a way that reflects your glory. We want to honor you, and we know that it is impossible our own, on our own efforts, and so we bow again before your throne of grace and ask that you will bring about changes first and foremost in our own heart and mind so that we truly understand the fullness of your presence in us and may in some way begin to grasp with the community of faith the height and width and length and depth of the love of Christ for us so that our lives may be compelled by the love of Christ for not only how we operate in our relationships, in our marriages, and as parents, and in our friendships, and in the workplace, but Father, that we might live a life by faith that honors and glorifies you above everything else. We want to be your servants. 
who do not spend our life comparing ourselves by the standards of the world, but, Father, enjoy the incredible privilege of the abundance of Christ in us and that we would experience your love and joy and peace and patience and kindness in such a full manner that regardless of the circumstances we happen to face even this week as we step into the new year, that you are the calm in the midst of the storm and that you might bring our hearts peace and rest so that we might know the fullness of life. And so we come before your presence humbled by the fact that you would even give a thought of us and that your son would make such a great sacrifice so that we might know you personally. And so we enter into your scriptures really on sacred ground and I pray your spirit would be our instructor and teacher to transform our hearts so that we would be more like Christ. And for this we pray in Christ's name, amen. One of the things you look at the Old Testament and you see all kinds of chaos. It was God's covenant with Israel as they lived under the law. And as you see God fulfilling his promise by taking his people into the promised land, he ended up appointing a king that was not at first, that was Saul, who was not his first choice, but God deferred to the longings of the people in order to have a king like all the rest of the nations. As we know and follow Saul's reign, it didn't work well. It really was compromise and confusion. David was the one who then established a kingdom and was a man described as a man after God's own heart. And he set things up so that his son Solomon could come into the kingdom with all the resources he possibly could have in order to continue to serve God's purposes. I remember having a debate in my first pastorate in the middle of Alberta with uh, one of the ladies who we started having this argument about how good Solomon was. And she said, there isn't anybody who followed God more faithfully and of course, being who I am, I said, well, sort of. And she took issue with that. And I said, well, you have to remember that there were three things that God said that a king shouldn't do, and he went and violated all three of those in terms of being a king. And she pushed back and went, no, look at the, the glory of the kingdom and all that he achieved. And my response at the end of that was, and look what happened when he died, that the kingdom split and fractured into pieces because of his disobedience and leading people astray. Well, she had a hard time buying that. We debated that for about 10 minutes and she wasn't gonna win the argument. Um, that was just sort of me. But it was, it was interesting, our perception of success and what that looks like. Uh, what we discover when you get into 1 Kings 11 and get back to 2 Chronicles 10 is that Re uh, Solomon's son was to take over the throne and yet there was an individual, Rehoboam and Jeroboam, who then contended for the throne. And the, the appeal to them that, that uh, Solomon's son had to deal with was the idea of how do we deal with Israel and, and them coming to us saying, we need, a, we need a change here. We need a kingdom that's going to be different than the way Solomon, because we're being crushed by the demands and the weight of what he put on us. And so Solomon's son, as he began to look at this, Rehoboam uh, consulted the elders that David had put in place. They were the older, wiser men who helped him govern the kingdom. 
And he, they basically said, listen, take the load off these people. They'll serve you forever. And he looked at that, listened to that, and went, yeah, that didn't sound great. So he went to his friends who he grew up with, and they said, hey, listen, this is, this is a great time for a power trip. Was, they didn't put it in those words, but I think they saw an opportunity for them to enjoy the riches of their friend going to rule over the kingdom. And so they said, listen, if you thought Solomon's was going to be tough, we're going to make it tougher. We're, we're going to put more expectations and demands in you, and that ended up splitting the kingdom. It happened to be according to God's will, but this whole competition and this comparison about what the kingdom ought to be fractured the entire kingdom into Israel and Judah. And at some point, it started going downhill from there. And if you know the journey of both Judah and Israel, Judah had the better kings. They both ended up being in exile because of their disobedience to what God had called them to be and do. It reminds me a little bit of what is happening in the text in Mark chapter 8, or Mark chapter 9. Starting in verse 38, we have a new dialogue going on with the disciples, and I find this almost as humorous as the previous text, which talked about them arguing with one another about who's the greatest. And Jesus confronts them as they've had this discussion. Jesus wasn't included in it, but when they got to the home in Capernaum, he said like, "Uh, hey guys, what were you talking about? And nobody wanted to answer because I think they were, knew they were going to be embarrassed about the fact that they were going to argue who was the greatest. And, and so when we come to this particular text that follows, it seems like an odd discussion, but one that's pretty powerful in terms of what Jesus had to teach them as being servants. Now, after all, that's the real theme of Mark, is that Jesus did not come to be served, but he came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And the the reason we're going through the Gospel of Mark is because one of the greatest lessons that I think we as Christians in this century need to learn is, is to be a servant of God. There are all kinds of things that a servant of God will accomplish that no gifted individual is going to accomplish. It doesn't matter what your gifts are, what your talent is, how, what kind of education you have. If you're not going to choose to be a servant of the living God, there is so much that you will never enjoy in terms of his ministry in your life and the things that he calls us to do can only be done by servants that you may very well in this next year miss a tremendous amount of what God wants to do in your life and through you if you don't understand what it means to be a servant. And and so when we come to this particular passage, it's going to deal with the sense of ministry. So let me just read it to sort of introduce you to the thought that's going on here, and then we'll step through it a little bit this morning. Uh, I think actually when I I talked to our team this week and I said, you know, I think I'm gonna split this into two messages. Uh, One this week, then we have communion next week, and then the following week we're gonna finish it off by looking at some of the components a little bit more deeply here, because I think it's so critical, not just in terms of church and ministry, but even our own personal lives. Because what surfaces here is not only true about ministry and the dangers that we run into and the temptations we run into in terms of ministry, but it's also very reflective of our own personal journeys and the dangers that we can fall into in terms of my sense of self-worth and significance and security as I live out my life. So let me begin in verse 38 in Mark chapter nine. You can follow along any way that you choose to this morning. And John says to him, being Jesus, teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. 
But Jesus said, do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be soon afterwards to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. You know, one of the things that strikes me about this text is that there is a real danger, both in life and ministry, that they become a battleground for competition and comparison in terms of measuring my life to someone else's, or my ministry to someone else's ministry, or my church to someone else's church. And Jesus does some profound things here to to try to stay the disciples from using those kinds of standards to measure what successful and meaningful ministry is. And and as we begin to think through this, I hope there's a few things that surface from this that can challenge your own heart in terms of your own journey in ministry. As we begin this, I want you to notice the very first thing that comes up in this text is the problem of the disciples critiquing someone else's ministry. That the disciples come to Jesus and say, hey, listen, Jesus, we ran into some guy out there and he's running around casting out demons and doing this ministry in your name and we, and we try to stop him. That, it's an intriguing element. Now, Jesus never debates the issue of the validity of this person's ministry. Some of your minds might go back to Matthew chapter seven where there's individuals that at some point will stand before Jesus, and they're gonna say, look at what we did. We cast out demons. We proclaimed the message. We did these great works for you, and Jesus comes back to them and says, well, I don't care what you're claiming to do. I don't even know you, so you depart from me. You don't get a chance to enter into my kingdom regardless of what this looks like. But Jesus doesn't do that in this particular context. He, he hears the disciples saying, listen, we ran into this guy, he was doing ministry in your name and we did our best to shut him down. So the ministry is, as they describe it, this person was serving Jesus. You notice his name isn't given, he's anonymous which happens a lot in ministry. There's public ministry where we get the profile and everybody knows your name, so to speak, and then there's ministry of an anonymous person that we have no idea who it is, but they're still doing ministry, and Jesus doesn't debate it. Apparently, he is doing a meaningful ministry. It is a powerful ministry because he's actually going against demons and evil spirits, messengers of Satan, and he's casting them out of people's lives. And so it's, it's powerful. It, it, he really seems to have tapped into the power of God to do something that at this point the disciples kind of went, we thought we were the only ones that could do that. They certainly had seen Jesus do it. They knew, they, gave him the, they knew that Jesus gave them authority to go out and do these things, but apparently it seems like they hadn't run into anybody else doing this. And, and so it seems to be a ministry against the evils in the world and helping people discover freedom from that, what else could you ask for? This seems to reflect the presence of the coming kingdom that Jesus proclaimed, but somebody else is doing it. And the disciples look at that and go, wait a minute, something's wrong here. Something's not right. And I suspect that if we were to sort of think and sit down with the disciples, there could be a number of things that be going through their minds. 
Not only was this person doing a ministry that they probably thought they were the only ones that could do this, but he was not directly connected to Jesus or the disciples. They, that's pretty apparent from the, from the discussion that goes on here. We ran into this guy. We haven't heard you call this person. He hasn't been in a relationship. He hasn't been part of our community, and yet he's going out there, and I don't know if they would say this in their minds, pretending to represent you and casting out demons. So he's not loyal to us. He's doing his own thing out there. And, and, and there's gotta be something wrong with that because you called us, you're the primary authority, we're your cohort that is serving you Something has to be amiss here because this person isn't part of our group. Even though the ministry seems to be powerful, it's against evil things, everything seems legitimate, but he hadn't gotten their permission to do this. And so as you begin to notice, that one of the key statements that they say is, we tried to stop him. So they not only were critiquing this person and their ministry, but in fact, what they were doing is condemning it because they actually tried to stop him. Now, I don't know if you can put two to two together, but I've run into that on occasion in North American church. I've run into it not only in individual ministries and programs, I've run into it in terms of churches and how they view one another. I've seen this happen. And we've even discovered it in our own lives, if we're actually gonna be honest about it, is when we look at what our ministry is compared to somebody else's and there's always this temptation to say, well listen, wait a minute, they're not doing it the way I would do it. There's something wrong here. There's, there's something amiss. There are podcasts that exist in sort of the Christian world out there that their whole purpose is to go around and critiquing the authenticity of ministries and teachings and what they do out there. And it's almost intuitive in our nature that since we have the truth, we have Jesus, that there's always this temptation to start critiquing others and if they don't match what they, we think they should be doing, then it's easy to condemn them. Now, we don't have the ability like the disciples who actually caught up to this person and apparently they tried to forcibly stop him from doing ministry. Doesn't that sound stupid? Well, I tell you, that goes on a lot in today's world. Uh, we may not have the ability to physically stop people, but you will, if you listen to church talk a lot, and maybe Christian radio, podcasting, everything else, you got all kinds of people who spend much of their time critiquing the life and, and person and the ministries of churches. Now, you're gonna say, of course, in that sense, isn't it important that we know what the truth is? Isn't it important that we have the solid foundation? Well, as we work through here, I want you to see at some point as we work through this what Jesus' standards are and what his perspective is on ministry, and we'll get there in a few minutes. But listen, I, I think there's a real danger and a real temptation that whether it's my own individual ministry, whether it's this church compared to that church or whatever, that the American church has spent a tremendous amount of energy and time not only critiquing but condemning a lot of other ministries that I think at times Jesus would say they're very different than yours, but they're authentic. 
In fact, one could claim that the whole denominational movement and distinctives that all these denominations and different groups have is built upon personal convictions that say, we don't like what they're doing, we're gonna do it this way. Now in some respects, finding a niche, a uniqueness in terms of doing ministry isn't wrong. What becomes wrong is where people start evaluating other churches and saying, because they're not doing things the way we do it, then they obviously are wrong. Because it was even a temptation of the disciples where they were going, look, they don't have our permission to do this, they're obviously doing it wrong even though it looks good. And so they tried to stop him. What we do is verbally condemn and criticize and complain about ministries that don't mesh with lots of things in our life. It might be our theology, it might be our ideology. There's all kinds of things that we base our criticism of, of different ministries and even churches. And one of the primary reasons the disciples come to Jesus and say something's wrong here is because that person isn't following us. (laughs) That person isn't following us. It's kind of the bane of the church sometimes. They're not doing it our way. When we went through COVID, There was all kinds of posturing where churches were telling other churches what they had to do and what they should do. There was divisions within churches because people had certain convictions about things about, hey, if you're really going to be biblical, then you should do this. And other people were saying, well, if you're gonna be caring and loving, you gotta do this. And and it would be really easy for a lot of churches, and I know of some that just literally split in half over things like this, to weaponize personal convictions about how things should be done and and question the spirituality of others because they're not doing it the same way we do it. He's not following us. Now, if there's anybody in this planet at that particular time that might feel like they have the authority to do this, it would be the disciples. After all, Jesus personally called all of them, even Judas. And they had been with Jesus and he was training them and he showed them and and performed miracles and raised people and healed them and cast out demons and he demonstrated that this was his cohort that he was training to take over the ministry when he was going to rise from the dead and go back into the presence of the Father. Peter had walked on water. There's three of them that had experienced the transfiguration when the glory of Jesus was manifested and Moses and Elijah appeared with him on the Mount of Transfiguration. If there's anybody that could start claiming, listen, we have the exclusive authority about what Jesus wants, what Jesus wants to do, his methods and his approaches, we've got that figured out, we don't know this guy. And the church can easily get caught up in that. Wait a minute, we really understand the scriptures in a a better way than those guys over there because they're prejudiced. They've got a certain theology that doesn't match what our theology is and our theology of course is the one that's right and so they obviously will never do as much for Jesus as we will because they just don't get it. Well these people permit certain things to happen in their church that we would never do. 
And so therefore, they can't be authentic because they're not following us. And so while we may not physically go and try to stop somebody, we will certainly condemn and criticize and complain about them because they're not following us. And so as you move through this text, you'll discover, and I want to suggest to you some ways where these kinds of things surface from. I mean, I suspect that one of the problems here was their attitude. I mean, after all, I've already mentioned, Peter had walked on water, they'd been on the Mount of Transfiguration, they'd seen Jesus and hung with him personally, and so to all of a sudden see this other person doing miracles could easily have brought up a spirit of jealousy within them. <laughs> Wait a minute, we thought we were your chosen crew. <laughs> What's this guy doing? How, how come this guy's doing? He's gotta be fake because he's not part of our group. Obviously, the element of competition and comparison where they would, they're, they're comparing what they were doing and what, what this gentleman was doing in terms of doing ministry and he obviously can't be right because he's not part of us. And sometimes it comes from insecurity. You know, you get waves of movement. Uh, I've talked to you several times about the church out in New York where they saw, they did 145 baptisms this last year. Over the last five years, they've probably had more than 200 people, first-time individual decisions for Jesus. And it's kind of like, wait a minute. They could easily get into a posture of saying, what's wrong with everybody else? And the rest of us could go, well, when we compare ourselves to them, we're obviously failing. We're not doing something right. We must be less spiritual because we're not seeing exactly the same thing happen. And I don't know if the Jesus, the disciples were at a moment where that wasn't particularly happening at the moment, but this guy's casting out demons, kind of like, wait a minute, he's gonna get ahead of the curve and he's gonna become more popular than we are. Well, obviously, I can't prove the thoughts and intents of what the disciples are, but I do know they're human. And I know enough humans, and I know myself well enough, that sometimes we start wondering, what are we doing wrong? Am I unspiritual because the same things aren't happening? What happens if they become more popular than us? What if that church starts attracting more people? What if some of our people get bored with disciple making and they wanna go to a, a church that's way more entertaining? So it'd be easy to criticize the big guys and even the little guys because they do it differently. Even though they're making a difference. Sometimes it's the approach. I've already mentioned the disciples probably had in their mind that we're the authority of how Jesus wants things done. And so we tend to criticize people's methods and procedures when it comes to ministry. Well, they do this program. Well, we wouldn't do that program because we'd have to do this kind of program because this is the one we've always done. That one can't do anything like what we think it should do. If you don't think this exists, you gotta get out more. I've listened to pastors and leaders devastated by the fact that people are fighting so much over who gets to control a program and a ministry and which one stays and which one doesn't and whether it changes or not that people start exiting the building because they can't get their way. And it all comes from this sense of control and I know better how this works than these people do. 
And the idea of humility and grace and compassion and empowering each other to be successful, as it were, in terms of the Christian life and doing ministry and having each other's back just doesn't seem to exist in some churches. And so the problem isn't new. Apparently, it has happened a long time ago. We saw it with Solomon splitting the kingdom because he created this dysfunctional, earth-bound ministry and the people who wanted the most control couldn't get it so they split off. There's things like biblical issues that tend to split people and I'm not talking about the absolute core essentials of the faith. The idea of the deity of Christ and the triune God and the nature of humanity and their sinfulness, the nature of salvation. We're not talking about things like justification and those core issues. What happens in most churches is they start fighting over secondary issues. At Jesus' time, even his miracles became controversial. Remember the Pharisees and the scribes, they came to Jesus and saying, listen, you're obviously, you're doing these out of the power of Satan, the, the power of Beelzebul. And so they even accused Jesus of being evil and dysfunctional, and so there is conflict between Jesus and the Pharisees and the scribes, the religious and social leaders at that time. And there's cultural issues back then. I mean, obviously, they had the Roman presence and they were basically enslaved to their governing authority, but they had ethnic discrimination between the Jews and the Samaritans, the Gentiles and the Jews. There's all kinds of things that permeated this and, and could create all kinds of dissension. In Acts chapter 15, when they became somewhat convinced that the Gentiles were actually receiving the gospel and being saved, they had to have a huge council to figure out what we're going to do because to this point, we've had nothing to do with these people. And all of a sudden now they had to learn like they're, they're part of God's community. And that's certainly one of those tentative, sensitive, raw issues in our own culture. What's the central purpose of the church? How do we deal with social injustice and child slavery and immigration? How do we deal with things like ethnic inequality? If there's anything that can easily divide the church and we start criticizing and condemning people for doing or not doing certain things, that, those things top the list. Biblical issues like even spiritual gifts or baptism, the nature of salvation, roles of men and women in the church are all sort of both cultural and biblical issues that we're struggling with in the American church to figure out what's the right way to do it. And the danger is, is that if we come to a different conviction than someone else, all of a sudden they're unspiritual and we're not. When they, also there's theological issues. Jesus conflicted with the Pharisees and the scribes over all kinds of theology. I mean, Jesus at one point accused them that Satan was their father because they wouldn't respond to him as their Messiah. There was all kinds of difficult issues. There's ideology. We won't get into all of it in terms of, but there was sort of Israeli nationalism, that God's chosen people are the only ones that are here. And, and so these Gentiles 
they have to conform to what we do. They can't just walk in here like this. And we deal with similar things. Christian nationalism, social justice, ethnic reconciliation, global warming. All these kinds of things can create divisions because they're not doing it right, and we are. But then as they sort of unload on Jesus, and all these things are probably spinning at least in the background of their minds and their hearts, Jesus says, hang on. I've heard enough. Just stop for a minute. I want to tell you something. And his very words were, do not stop him from this ministry. The word stop means not to hinder him, don't prevent him from what he's doing, don't get in his way. And by very, the very nature of Jesus saying that is he's affirming the fact that this individual who's not part of their group is actually doing a valid, genuine ministry in the name of Jesus. And what's intriguing here is that Jesus now breaks the shell and the bubble that the disciples are the, the, the only exclusive authority about what Jesus wants done and how to do it. And he now says, listen, this is bigger than you guys. This is, this is bigger than you because somehow this other individual has believed in Jesus and discovered the power of God, not only in terms of his own life, but in terms of doing ministry. And Jesus is gonna say to them, this is okay. And so he says, you need to stop critiquing and criticizing him. I don't want you trying to get in his way. I don't want you evaluating and criticizing and complaining about him. I want you to stop it and let him do his ministry. And Jesus' perspective kind of bursts the bubble of the disciples who think that that person needed their permission and had to go by their authority in order for them, his ministry, to be legitimate. And so Jesus follows this up by simply saying, no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able to speak evil of me afterwards, soon after. Now that sounds a little trivial to us because it's kind of like, well, what, do you get it three days and then he starts cursing Jesus? Like, I mean, what's, what's the point? Well, it's, it's a little bit similar to the same thing in 1 Corinthians 12. You know that um, where Paul writes this, you know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. So Jesus is pointing out a fundamental principle or perspective that's saying, listen, if he's doing this in my name and he is serving me, He's not going to turn around and start cursing me if he's genuine and authentic. That's not for you to determine at this point in the discussion. And so the, the idea here is, by the way, you'll notice in 1 Corinthians 12 that the subject matter in 1 Corinthians 12 is about spiritual gifts and the body of Christ. <laughs> at least when I was a teenager and college student and whatever, the whole controversy and condemnation of churches that some believed gifts had ceased and some didn't believe they'd see that they were for everybody and all this, that was kind of the big war of, of how you measured someone's spirituality. Oh no, we're not like them, that's, you know, we don't do that because 
we already know and we con we've already concluded that that can't happen anymore. Today, there's other things. Eschatology tends to be the litmus test. If you don't seem to have the right eschatology, all of a sudden you're, you're not very spiritual if you don't have the right information. And so then Jesus follows that statement up by saying, listen, the one who is not against us is for us. And you might be tempted to say, is Jesus just naive by saying that? I mean, that was my first thought, is that the idea that who isn't against him is for him sounds too simple. I mean, I, I know lots of people, that, I mean, the argument would be this, just because someone is not against you doesn't mean they're for you. I mean, I know lots of people who may not be against Christianity, but they're not necessarily for Christianity. They're, they're okay with it being part of the matrix and, and uh, the whole idea of everyone gets to choose whatever religion they want, so they're going like, yeah, I'm not really against it, it's not my thing, but. So it would be puzzling, but th the context here is in the context of doing ministry. This, they caught this man doing ministry and demonstrating the power of God in fighting evil. And even though he's doing a legitimate ministry, the, Jesus says, listen, no one in a sense, conserve two masters. If they're doing ministry in my name, they're not gonna turn around in a minute and start cursing me. And the principle here is that no, the one who is not against us is for us. So he's not just talking generally, he's talking specifically about this sense of ministry. If they know the gospel, they know the power of God, they've gotta relate, then even though they do things very differently than you, they're legit. And so as you begin to think through this, Jesus then finishes this off with a really fascinating and profound statement, which sort of turns this whole thing on its ear. He says, for whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose their reward. Now why would he say something like that? That's, that seems like completely out of the context of what's taking place here. Well, one, Jesus affirms this individual's ministry and their walk with Jesus. He is saying, listen, I, I don't care what your feelings are toward them, whether you want to criticize them and condemn them and stop them from doing what they're doing, but if he's doing it in my name and he's serving me and he knows the power of God, he's legit. So he affirms the one who is not with them. And in fact, he empowers the legitimacy of what this person is doing. But what Jesus is now telling the disciples is that this ministry is much bigger than just you. I am training you and I'm equipping you to be in a sense, as Ephesians would tell us, the foundation of the church is going to be built upon your lives, but this ministry is clearly bigger than just you guys. There are others that I am touching and they are just as valid and significant as you guys are don't spend wasting time criticizing and critiquing and condemning other people who simply do it differently because they're not supporting you. But the other thing Jesus does here I think is also significant. If you compare the first statement with the last one, the disciples start by saying, we saw someone casting out demons in your name.
And Jesus finishes it by saying, if you guys receive a cup of water from someone because you belong to me, they will not by any means lose their reward for doing it. Now what's, what's the point of the statement? Well, I believe that the point of the statement is this. We all love the big power ministry. We love to see the power of God explode on the scene and radically change people's lives. That's the whole point of casting out demons. I mean, if you look at the life of Jesus, that was a pretty dramatic thing. It was public, it was powerful. I mean, it was beyond imagination and everybody loves the drama of the power of God crushing Satan in a public situation. And it's a little bit like the, je- the disciples are a little bit jealous because it's kind of like, we thought we were the only ones that could do this. Now we've got someone competing with us doing the same kinds of things that we've seen you do and that we've done. We're going to lose followers. And so when Jesus turns it around and says, well, one, you have to be very open to supporting people whose ministry is different than what you're doing. It's not your place to go around criticizing and condemning others because they're not supporting you. That they haven't got your permission to do what's going on. And so as they rumble through this, the, the, the picture here says, but I want you to think about something different, Jesus says to them. If you receive a cup of water from somebody, not nearly as dramatic as casting out demons, I mean, this is, this is kind of insignificant, behind the scenes, irrelevant, because what difference does that make? The, the heart of this is saying, hey, we're, we love the big power moves where God does some magnificent things, but I'm gonna tell you that if you simply receive a cup of water because someone knows that you belong to me and they wanna help you out of the kindness of their heart to support what you're doing in terms of mission and ministry, that person will by no means lose their reward. And what Jesus does is almost put these two very different kinds of ministries on the same playing field. Yeah, we love the power game in terms of seeing the power of God change circumstances and really miraculously deliver and radically deliver people from their afflictions. But Jesus comes back and says, you know, yeah, that's all well and good, but you show me a person who because you know Christ and you're willing to receive what they want to do for you by taking a drink of water from them, I can tell you right now that God himself will reward that person for that ministry that you might count out as insignificant and irrelevant, but it's just as valuable as casting out demons. The other reason why I think this whole dialogue is important for you and I is that if you take the whole ministry context out of it, there are individuals who are Christians who think that their life, as they compare and they think about competing with other talent and abilities of people in the church, they don't measure up. So what they do seems totally insignificant and irrelevant. All I do is Help put papers together for the children's ministry. All I do is, is I volunteer in the nursery. That, I mean, that obviously isn't near as much fun. And I, and I don't want to waste a Sunday sitting in nursery when I could be sitting in the service worshiping. I, I don't want to help out on security because, you know, that's, I mean, is that a, is that a ministry? 
And sometimes we get in our own head and we start criticizing and labeling and stereotyping certain ministries as being way more important as other ministries because obviously this is public and we really see the power of God, but here, well, you know, giving a drink of water, that like, yeah, okay, fine. But there's some Christians who spend their whole life trying to compare and compete with other believers that some never get involved in ministry. They never do anything because I can't do anything that's gonna make a difference. And sometimes the greatest obstacle in our lives and in your life is not what the rest of the church is doing or how big the programming is or how many people are coming to Jesus, is that I refuse to get involved simply because, yeah, I've got nothing to offer. I don't really believe God can use me to make a difference in someone else's life. And that Jesus is making an absolute point to these people that ministry done in Jesus' name will be rewarded and it's valid and it's valuable regardless of how we measure the, the significance of it on a human level. And the same is true for our individual lives. is that if you're willing to be a servant of God, he can use you whether it's serving a cup of water or being in a public power ministry that really demonstrates the power of Christ. Everyone will receive their own reward from God if they're doing it in the name of Jesus. All genuine ministry has value in Christ's kingdom work. Regardless of whether it seems to be great public ministry or whether it's behind the scenes and nobody is aware of my anonymous presence in this ministry, but God sees it. The reason we spend so much time critiquing and criticizing often is because of our own struggles of unworthiness. That we don't really believe God that when he saved us and reconciled us to God and he made us a child of God and removed us from wrath, gave us the righteousness of Christ. There's lots of Christians who go, I'm not buying that. I'm still a worthless piece of junk. And I can't serve and I can't get involved because, wow, there's way more people that are talented. I could never make a difference. And what God wants is not great talent but humble servants. So the question I want to ask you this morning is, how do you really see yourself? Do you see yourself as someone who has to have talent, who compares yourself to others and then gets involved if you think you can make the kind of difference that you want to make? Or are you willing to be a servant of Christ to allow him to lead you even into serving cups of water for the glory of Christ and in his name? Sometimes that's a tough decision. What choices do you have to make this morning before the Lord to kind of resolve some of this stuff in here? Maybe you've been a person that feels like you've spent much of your time complaining and criticizing. Maybe even our own church and leaders because they're not doing it the way you think it ought to be done. Maybe it's other churches that it's easy to criticize because, well, they're obviously just 
into marketing and they're not really into disciple making. Or maybe it's more personal where it's like, yeah, I could never be used by God because I don't have that kind of talent. The reason why the Gospel of Mark is so critical is because Jesus says what I need is humble, faithful servants. Father, we are often overwhelmed by our own inadequacies. And so even though you've saved us, we don't see ourselves living on mission for Jesus because we're not public speakers and we don't know all the answers and can't defend the faith well enough to share Jesus with others. On the opposite side, there's people that sometimes think that they're God's gift to everybody and unless things go through them, then other people must be in a false ministry because they're not following us. They're not following me. Father, I ask you give us this profound sense of humility that understands that you have saved us and made us a child of God so that you might glorify yourself. And far beyond education or talent or ability, you desperately want us to be servants because you can use servants who really don't care whether they're in public ministry and can brag about the power of Jesus doing great things there or whether they serve a cup of water because they simply want to serve you and honor Christ. Father, keep changing and healing our hearts so that we deal with the arrogance and the pride that often afflicts our own mindset so that we care about serving you more than about our reputation with the people around us. And for this we pray in Christ's name.